Hi everyone, it's been a while and I'm so happy to be back. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. I am so excited to close out 2022 with you, sharing three new and final episodes for season three. Today, you'll hear from Gary Hamilton at WSP, Marianne Manso at Pernod Ricard is coming up next, and last but not least, we'll hear from three members of the Band of Sisters, Lori Marcus, Cy Nicholson, and Dawn Hudson. Holly Gordon, an earlier guest in season three, said this, Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. I really love this quote because it perfectly sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. In my work as an executive coach and leadership strategist, I've been super lucky to work with some incredible leaders. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas that you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you so much for supporting me on this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it, forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening? If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. Now, on to the show. Gary Hamilton is a Senior Vice President and Healthcare Practice Leader for WSP, which provides management and consultancy services to the built and natural environment. With 25 years of experience in designing and building healthcare facilities globally, Gary is passionate, not just about his work, but how he shows up as a leader and being a role model for others. I have to tell you, Gary's stories about his life and his career are pretty special and inspiring. I promise you will come away from this conversation with a renewed conviction around your own life and career. Get ready. I start writing about healthcare, healthcare facilities, and about critical care operating rooms. The reason why I did that, I actually had a bike accident when I was 18 years old. Oh, uh uh-huh. One of the great things that came about from my accident, it's really the foundation of my passion for healthcare is knowing that I didn't have access to good healthcare at the time. If I didn't have the means, if I didn't have a connection with my aunt at the hospital, what would have been? I don't know. Right. That's something that's always my thoughts. And if I could create access to healthcare for people like myself, just think how much it could change a life or change lives on a whole. That's what shines through to my client, create access to healthcare and to underserved communities. I could change life and that's what I'm doing now. And that's what I do every day. Gary Hamilton, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I know that this is going to be a great conversation because I already know you're a top conversationalist. (laughs) So you and I had a chance to get to know each other several months ago when I worked on a project with you at WSP, which is where you work now. And we put together an informal chat with you and your colleague, Rebecca Nolan, to talk about networking. And the two of you had some really practical, fun ideas about networking, like how to do it, what to do when you hate networking, the benefits of it, how to approach it in our pandemic-y virtual world, and a lot more. And it was a good conversation. And I knew then that you had some other stories about yourself and about leadership that I think would benefit a lot of people. So here we are. (laughs) So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I really did enjoy that conversation. And it's funny that it was nothing scripted, but when you 
look back and think about it, the result was phenomenal in terms of the response from the listeners and from the WSP uh, employees. I got several calls after um, to talk about ideas and people just saying thanks and they appreciate insights and some of the tips that they will definitely use in networking. I could really tell that you were passionate about networking and you had really used it. And maybe that's even something we can talk about today because I think that the way that you use networking really enhanced your leadership. Absolutely. What I thought fascinating was not just the obvious reasons why it enhanced your leadership, but your internal mindset around it. Because from what I remember about our conversation, one of the things that you said was, I just decided, and maybe this isn't exactly what you said, but like I decided I wanted to be a thought leader. And I knew that in order to do that, I needed to get out there and meet people. And I needed to do writing, I needed to do reading. And that all tied into you being a really great networker. Is that how you would describe it? And that's exactly how it happened. It actually stems from me actually working in London, in England for nine years, and then moved to the U.S. I went to a small firm called S3E Klingman first, and then I moved to Smith Group. And at the time, without the experience in the U.S., I wanted to find a way to accelerate my learning, but also elevate my position. I was known in the U.K. I did great work and um, known by clients. But then to cross the waters and to do the same thing and try to regain momentum, I realized that I have to do something different. I have to um, do something that I think that will stand out and will allow me to elevate myself, but also for me to be much more known in the industry and forging my path in the healthcare industry. I thought leader, it was brand new at the time. Yeah. I thought, why don't I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. So some of it was you transitioning not only from another firm, but from another country (laughs) and really establishing yourself in the firm, in the country by networking, being a big part of that is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. I think I remember that, but I'm glad that you pointed that out because that's such a great idea in terms of transition. And that could be like you're transitioning to a different career, right? That's right. I got to create a natural network, even if it's organic. Absolutely. And what I thought, I said, okay, what does it entail? It entails writing, whether it's byline article, just being out there writing articles as part of different publication. And as being an engineer, I started writing for Engineering System Magazine. Initially, it was challenging. It took me four months to write the first article because I was completely terrified about (laughs) doing it. Because that's not something that I thought that was part of me. It's just something that I thought, you know what, I could do it if I tried. What should I write about? And that's the biggest challenge. Is it a great project? Is it a great process? Is it something that I didn't know everything? So it's a situation that I had to really sit down, think about it, and really try to figure out what path that I'm trying to create in the industry. And then that's the route I took. I start writing about healthcare, healthcare facilities, and about critical care operating rooms and those type of critical environments. The reason why I did that, I actually had a bike accident when I was 18 years old. Oh, uh uh-huh. So at the time, I actually had a surgery to repair my kneecap. My kneecap was split in two from the bike accident. That was four months, actually, before I started engineering. So I was actually in the hospital three months prior to actually going to school. And infection set in my knee. And I had to remove my kneecap completely. Wow. Because they couldn't be closed. I had 12 operations on my knee. 12? 12. Oh, my gosh. And is that because it got infected or is that because of... It got infected. And I'm from Jamaica originally. So 
the health system at the time in Jamaica, which is still a challenge now, I remember having an accident. They took me to the hospital. They sent me home. Wow. Because they didn't have any x-ray in the local hospital to x-ray my feet. I was sent home on a piece of board. My foot was supported on a piece of board to take me to the nearby city the next day. And it was purely by connection that my aunt was actually the matron of a hospital on the other side of the island, which is in Kingston, the capital city. My mom was not in the country at the same time. She was in the Cayman Islands. So she arranged transportation for me to go all the way to Kingston. So they put me in a bus, not in a private transport, but with other people. I traveled to Kingston. I went straight into surgery immediately, but then thought it was successful. It wasn't. And then I spent the next three months in hospital trying to recover and trying to really get out to go to school. So that's where I start looking at the healthcare environment. So thinking about why is it that infection set in my foot? Is it because of the hospital environment? Was it because of the HVAC system? Is it because the equipment weren't sterile? What exactly is the situation? And that's where I said, okay, you know what? This might come full circle. So what if I specialize in critical space and ORs and really research and really figure out what's the requirement? What are the needs that can prevent people like me to actually experience the same challenges during surgeries? And that's how I start writing a lot of articles on that. Infection control, indoor air quality within spaces, and became such a thought leader about it because I was intrigued and it just connected to my experience And that's how my taught leadership just took off because people were interested. Let me back up because I think this is really interesting. So before you broke your kneecap, you were interested in engineering. You were about to go to school for engineering. And then you had this experience of breaking your kneecap. And this sounds like a horrific experience. I mean, luckily it sounds like it was okay, but it took a long time. But for you, you ended up melding engineering and your passion for that and healthcare which was a firsthand experience of what was not working, but also being really curious about why it wasn't working, like what was behind it. I'm sure it was very complex, but you were taking what you knew and loved about building and space and how things are built that support an industry in healthcare. And you brought those together. Absolutely. And I think it was surely by chance and coincidence, but it really just stimulated my interest in the healthcare environments. Spending three months in a hospital will, will do a whole lot of stuff for you because you, you have a lot of thoughts and negative and positive thoughts. But it's really sitting down and understanding that going through this tough challenge in the situation, I still remain positive. Looking back, I thought that experience actually created this type of mindset for me that, you know what, doesn't matter the challenges. Yeah. One of the great things that came about from my accident is that when the doctor was going to take out my kneecap, I play a lot of sports. I play table tennis. I play soccer. Uh-huh. Play soccer. I've been playing soccer all my life. I did track and field. I played chess. And I remember the doctor that actually took my kneecap out, he came to me. He was a chess player as well in Jamaica. So I was actually ranked when I was playing chess in Jamaica. So I know him well. So he came to me and he said, Mr. Hamilton, unfortunately, you won't be playing soccer anymore or for the rest of your life. <sighs> you would have to stick to playing chess. And that was a conversation that I had with him, which was devastating. Yeah. The first gift I got at one year was a soccer ball for my dad. I captained my high school team. I played for several teams. And it was just one of those things that I thought, wow, this is where it's going to go. But I had to resolve that whatever I need to do to get out of the hospital and get better, it just had to be done. They did that. And I went off to Trinidad because I actually did my engineering degree in Trinidad. At the time, the University of the West Indies is a Caribbean university. Okay. And 
if you want to specialize in engineering, there's center of excellence in Trinidad. If you want to do medicine, it's in Jamaica. And if you want to do law, it's in Barbados. So that's the reason why I had to go to Trinidad. The beauty of the whole thing is that I remember I was referred to a doctor called Dr. Terry Alley. He was the doctor for the Trinidad and Tobago soccer team that was the second team in the Caribbean to actually go to the World Cup. He was tasked to take care of me and get me back to start walking because I was still on crutches when I went to school. He said to me, um, well, let's start working. And in a year, I took the support off my feet. I had to do a surgery to, to bend my knee because it was completely immobile. I couldn't bend it. So I had to do a surgery to, to bend it. It was, it was in that straight position for too long. So after that, we start working together. And he said to me, you know what? Do you want to play soccer again? And I'm like, what? Is that possible? And he said, well, we don't know, but let's try. And we start doing physio and everything. And I kid you not, in about a year, I was playing soccer again. Wow, that's incredible. And in about two years, I actually represented the university team in the collegiate games. Oh my gosh. So you weren't just playing soccer, you were playing soccer. <laughs> yes, yes. And that created that mindset for me that even against medical advice, I can triumph. And even against the odds. Yeah. I became victorious. Like to me, that was such a, a victory for me. And that really created my mindset that I could do anything. <laughs> it's so powerful. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because it manifested itself physically, right? Which I think in some ways can be almost helpful because it's so clear. It's like, okay, you broke your kneecap. They said that you couldn't play soccer. You had all these surgeries. I mean, it seemed pretty unlikely, but you're right. You had this determination, but you also had the help from other people to say, let's try it. And it wasn't like, oh, there's a silver bullet or it's a miracle. It's like, no, let's give it a shot. Let's try it. And you probably did a lot of work to get there. <laughs> oh, we absolutely did. I still have situation in which I go to orthopedic doctors and I still play now. Okay. Okay. Very good. I have a rehab doctor that I play with. He said, what? And you're running and doing that? <laughs> it was just completely surprised to him. He's like, listen, I would just like to work with you. I just like to tell people about you. Wow. That's amazing. And it sounded like it not only gave you the confidence, I mean, it gave you a really good story to talk about and to connect with, I assume, I mean, this sounds crazy, but with your clients about why you're passionate about healthcare, why you're passionate about what you do. Yeah. It's really the foundation of my passion for healthcare is knowing that I didn't have access to good healthcare at the time. If I didn't have the means, if I didn't have a connection with my aunt at the hospital, what would have been? I don't know. Right. That's something that's always my thoughts. And if I could create access to healthcare for people like myself, just think how much it could change a life or change lives on a whole. That's my passion. And that's what shines through to my client is that my passion is really assisting, helping. It's really figuring out how I can make an impact, whether it's on people, whether it's on patients, or, or whether it's on a community. It became my passion and it drives me because from then, I formed a nonprofit organization called Dreams Reality Foundation. I did all sorts of stuff because my passion was to say, you know what, if I can give back and if I can create access to healthcare and to underserved communities, I could change life. I could impact positively on communities. And that's what I'm doing now. And that's what I do every day. So tell us about that, because I feel like everything that you've just said, you could probably be doing a lot of different things. What are you doing day to day as it relates to healthcare at a high level? I'm the East Coast healthcare leader for WSP. My task is maintain client relationships 
that's something that I enjoy doing. <laughs> so it's creating relationship and maintaining the relationships that we have, which we've been very successful doing. Something that I do as part of my day-to-day -day is really reaching out to clients and making sure that my projects are really, it's really taking care of my team, making sure that they have all their needs, all their requirements to deliver great projects. I always say any great manager or great leader need a team that could deliver for them so that they could go out there and do their work. But one of the things that's truly great for me in my position is that I'm allowed to chase the projects that I'm passionate about. Okay. My leaders actually empower me to do that. If I say to them, listen, I want to do a project in Jamaica. Why would you want to do a project in Jamaica? There's not a lot of healthcare going on in Jamaica, but there is some healthcare. And what if we create something that we can improve health in this country that obviously I'm from, but I'm connected to as well. And I'm currently doing a project in Jamaica. And it's funny, something came up on LinkedIn about five years ago when I met the Minister of Health. I had a WSP brochure just to tell him about healthcare and what we can do. And five years on the road, I actually signed a contract last year. I'm doing the biggest renovation project in the whole Caribbean. Wow. And I'm doing that in Jamaica, in a country that I know that needs that assistance in terms of healthcare. They need that. They don't have the skill set. They haven't been to the hospital in 27 years. And they don't really have the skills of people to do it. So I am actually helping the government. It's really exercising my passion, but also giving back and giving back to a country that gave me so much. That's the autonomy that leadership gives me and allow me to, which I truly appreciate. That's amazing. Yeah, because to have that autonomy, I was going to say, did you feel like it was a hard sell or not? It sounds like an amazing project, no matter what country it's in. <laughs> but was that a hard sell, like being able to pursue the projects that you're passionate about? To be honest, it's not. Kudos to my lead. His name is Rick Romy. From day one, I moved to WSB. He was a, such a big supporter. Most of the stuff that I would be pushed back, maybe on the local level, and I would raise it to him, he would immediately support me Wow! right away without even thinking twice, which is just such amazing. And I tell you a story. I became a fellow of the American Society of Healthcare Engineers in 2019 in Baltimore, which is, I live in Maryland, so it's my hometown. The biggest moment of my career, I named a fellow at a tender age, early 40s, and also, I haven't seen a lot of people that look like me yeah. um, actually be made a fellow. I've been going to these conferences and being a part of the organization for 17 years. And that was huge to me. My wife came to the ceremony. My sister flew from the UK. Oh, my God. And everybody was there. And I was on the stage. And when I looked down from the stage, it was Rick Romy that was sitting with my family. Oh, my gosh. He didn't let me know that he was coming. But he was there, and I remember when I collected my award and walked down, and he said to me, um, Gary, I had to be here. Oh, which he didn't have to be, right? <laughs> he didn't have to be. Now, you're the CEO and head of property and buildings, and you took the opportunity of your schedule to support me. I thought that that really showed the type of person he is, and that really helped me and empowered me also to show up and show out when I'm going out and doing what I need to do. It's, if it's client management, winning work, doing business development and winning projects, that give me all that energy that I need to really know that at the biggest level, 
I'm supported. Yeah. So actually, since you brought it up, and I know this is a big part of how you think and your story in terms of representation and equity and being a voice for other people who might want to follow in your footsteps. But like you were saying, there's not maybe a lot of people that look like you. Just generally, how has your experience being a person of color, being someone not originally from this country, how has that impacted you as a leader? It's funny when I think about it, I never used color and my circumstances as an impediment. Mm -hmm. I had never seen it as one. But what I truly see it as is I always feel like I have a chip on my shoulder or something to prove. It's something within me that's, that's my mindset. To say it has never been on my mind, I would be lying. I had experience that I could tell you that really allow me to think differently. I can tell you about two particular circumstances in which I didn't understand because moving to the UK in the first place, I never experienced racism or understand what it is. <laughs> I've never even thought about it. I loved everybody. That's exactly how we operate <laughs> and how we live. You know, that's, yeah. that's my mindset. I remember having my first engineering job and I was on a bus on my way to the Tower of London. It was early in the morning. I jumped in the bus and walked to the back of the bus. And a lady actually, she was there and she grabbed her bag. Oh my gosh, as you're walking by. And she grabbed her bag and like speed to the front of the bus. Oh my gosh. Imagine a 21-year-old in a brand new country, like didn't really understand what that means. Wow. And I'm like, okay. Um, I went and actually explained to my boss at the time. And he's like, hey, uh, it's going to be like that at times. Um, you have people who would act in that way. It's not about you. It's about them. It's interesting you went to your boss to talk about it. I'm kind of curious, like what made you talk to him about it? The funny thing about my boss at the time, that, his name is Barry Schamberg. I'm still in touch with him. He, a Caucasian, great guy who believed in me and gave me the opportunity when nobody was giving me opportunity. I moved to the UK. I applied for 100 jobs. Wow. I've written 100 application letters and got two response. Well, I got 98 rejections. <laughs> you got a response. <laughs> but, yeah. I got two responses that was, okay, you can come for an interview. One was for a research job that they wanted to work for free. They, wow. they weren't going to pay me. They're like, we don't have any money. Are you kidding me? And the next job I was interviewed for was for a construction company called the Keir Group. I remember taking a bus, the train. It took me about two and a half hours and the first thing I was told, they said, hey, Mr. Hamilton, um, I looked at your resume and um, you don't really have the experience to do this job. So I thought, oh, wow, maybe he's just challenging me. I start going on, yes, I have the educational background. I may not have the practical skills, but I'm excited to learn. And I went on and start explaining the reason why I think I'm suited for this job. In the middle of everything, and the guy said, well, you're not. You don't have the experience. We need somebody with two years experience. And I'm like, but you, I'm here. You basically <laughs> asked me to come for an interview. So that's the reason I'm here. So yeah, you knew. You had my resume. And he said to me, hey, Miss Hamilton, to be honest, I came to the country when maybe about five months after I finished my degree. So he said, most of the people that are new grads are already in employment. So most of the companies are already hired a lot of those persons. So he was explaining to me the reason why it's going to be a huge challenge. So I said to him, um, but what about giving me the opportunity? And he said, listen, you have a degree from the Caribbean, which is not 
he said it's not accredited, but that's not true. Uh-huh. He was saying, you know, it's not well recognized in the UK and that you're going to be competing against people from Imperial College and, and Cambridge and all those universities, which I fully understand. Yeah. So I said to him, but what if? But what if that degree is comparable? Because it's actually accredited by the University of London. Oh. That's the degree. So it's based totally on the UK curriculum when it comes to um, college education. Right. So he still went on, but I did try to school him on exactly <laughs> the, <laughs> on it. But he said to me, um, I think you should try to get some experience, maybe any type of engineering experience if you can. I said, well, I would love to get some with care group. And he said, at this point, it's not possible. Okay. So walking away, I said, you know what? I'm going to maybe try to do anything for the time being and try to apply for my master's degree so that I could get something international. Yeah. That's where I started. But what Barry Schamberg, I remember applying for a job because it was in the paper, applied for it. And when I went to the interview, I had no qualifications because he wanted somebody to be a junior billing service engineers. I had a civil engineering major, nothing to do with billing services, nothing to do with MEP. I remember he said to me, listen, I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to give you the chance. I remember he asked me, what's your salary requirement? <laughs> I said, anything. <laughs> I said, I don't have any, just if, if I'm getting a job, you could pay me anything. And I remember he said to me, I'll start you on eight pounds an hour, which is at that time is just... If he was exploiting me, I really didn't care. <laughs> I'm like, I am starting this job. I'm getting on the engineering ladder, and this is where my career starts. And I remember in about three months, he doubled my salary. Oh, wow. <laughs> in about six months, I'm working at a comparable salary with a lot of first grad in the country, and he held my hand. And I remember he said to me, listen, Gary, if you're an engineer, you're an engineer. So don't use your degree as what your end point is. It's always a start. It helps you with critical thinking, and it will give you that stepping stone to do what you want to do. And that's how I confided him. I remember he didn't have a seat for me. It's a small company with six engineers. Okay. I didn't have a seat. He actually, when I came to work the first day, he said, you could sit in my office. Oh my gosh. <laughs> He had a big chair. So I was sitting in his office because he's mostly out there. So that's where I was sitting for part of the time until he find a seat for me. So this is a guy that helped my hand. I was brand new to the country and he paid for my master's degree. And that's the reason why I felt that comfort with him to speak to him because to me, he was such a teacher and a mentor who wanted to help and saw that I needed that help. Wow. Gary, your story is incredible. From 18 onward, it's like this constant, there's a barrier, I'm going to overcome that, and (laughs) I don't care how hard it's going to be. And yet, I don't sense any sort of, I'm sure that it was really hard at the time, and so I'm sure you were going through things. I just sense energy and this like enthusiasm and this optimism. Where does that come from? What are some of the things that really drive you and have driven you and have helped sustain you? So I tell you where it came from. A lot of people ask, and why, why do you smile so much? <laughs> I always say I leave with a smile. I leave with a smile, empathy, and compassion. That's me. That's what shines through because I'm truly from what I call a ghettoized community. I wrote a book called Get the Youth's Bible. I'm from nothing. I grew up in a tough community in Jamaica where a lot of my friends are truly not in the same position that I am in. Wow. I've lost a lot of friends through violence because of the community that I'm from. And it still is the same in those communities. So (laughs) it's funny. I said I have no choice but to be appreciative and upbeat because I know where I'm from. I I know the other side. It drives me. It really gives me that energy to really try to be my best and do my best. 
my mom is such an inspiration and she's the one that is maybe 90% responsible for me and my success. To be honest, the other 10% is me realizing that, listen, this woman wants it more than anything else and wants it for her family. And, and that's where I feel 100% because leaving in high school, my mom never had a job at that time. When I told you that she was working, she got her first job as a living helper in the Cayman Islands. And that's the first time she traveled out of the country. And we have four kids. My dad actually left us when I was 10 years old. Wow. And it was her alone without a job. And she was this entrepreneurial. She had a shop. She baked. She did everything that she, you know, she created a lot of jobs. I remember I used to sell in the market. Like I used to go and actually sell juice and stuff in the market, like up and down, takes days off school. Um, I remember when my friends used to see me, I used to hide. It was not something that I'm proud about, yeah. but it's something that I had to do to help the family. So it's coming from that. It's really coming from that. And it's truly talking about it. I feel emotional. Yeah, I bet. Because it's really that background and that helped me and pushed me forward and just caused me to have this enthusiasm towards life that I know the other side and I know what I'm allowed to do now and that success and everything that comes in my life is not something that I take for granted. No. That's why I smile. That's why that's why I'm enthusiastic about life. Seeing your mom, obviously she didn't give up and she was working everything she knew how to keep things going and then taking that job away from her kids, just seeing her determination must have given you that determination. And then I'm sure that she loves you so much and just yes. that love, I'm sure, sustained you to feel like there's something that I meant to do. I don't know. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We talk about diversity and being Black and from a different country. What drives me is my humble beginning. But the experience in a profession and a career, I'm truly a minority in terms of ascending in engineering. When I was a partner at Smith Group, I became a partner I was the first African-American partner in the Washington, D.C. office for a company that was almost like 150 years old. Wow, that's incredible. It was just like astounding. I didn't even understand. I remember Rennie Grant, who's still at Summit Group, was associate, and he was there for like maybe 25 years. He pulled me away and said, can I sit with you for a second? And I said, yes. He said, do you understand what you have achieved? Oh. And I'm like, what? Um, what, what, he's like, I've been here for 25 years. I've never seen African-American being made a partner. So what you achieve is no easy feat and you should be extremely proud. Wow. I didn't realize that. So me going through that is just like me not even knowing that nobody has traveled that path, but I was completely fearless and I wanted to be my best. I wanted to do my best. I continued to push through irrespective of circumstances. I remember feeling that I was passed over before mm -hmm. and I wanted to leave. I went to my headhunter, the one that actually got me the job. I met Curtin. I you know, had to shout him out that he's still a friend of mine and he actually get me to Smith Group. And I went to him and I said, hey, I don't think that Smith Group is a place for me to be. And he said, why? I said, I've been working so hard. I've been doing everything. I think I deserve a raise. It was actually during the recession. So at the time, not a lot of people were getting raised. Yeah. But I just thought that I was just giving my all. I deserve something. And I deserve to be associate, name associate. And I wasn't. I was leading massive projects and I was doing all sorts of stuff. And I thought, you know, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I remember he said to me, hey, I can actually get you any job. I could get you anything, but I think you should stay. I said, what do you mean? Like, he's a headhunter. Yeah, right. <laughs> that makes no sense to me. And, and he said, I think you're almost there. 
I think you just have to go back, keep doing what you're doing. You're almost there. He said to me, and I remember, I think one thing you don't know about, about yourself is that you're doing great things and people are seeing it. Wow. You're so humble at times and really don't understand the impact that you're making in the industry. But go back and I could assure you that it will happen. I went back. I was made associate the year after. And the year after, I didn't even wait in between associate and partner. I was made a partner the next year. That's amazing. I know that's hard. It was just the most incredible feeling also. I always think, man, it doesn't matter your color, your background, where you're from. If you were doing your work, people will see, people will notice. And that's what I've achieved is that I didn't use my color or my circumstances to really dictate my mindset. That's something that drives me and still do. But it seems like you're also trying to showcase that you're obviously not the only one. You don't want to be the only one. And so I feel like what you're also saying to other people is, I want to encourage you that you can be who you want to be, and particularly in engineering, certainly other places, but engineering is your passion. It's funny you say that. I was wearing the shirt that we have at the National Society of Black Engineers Conference over the weekend. I wore it from LA. It says, I am not the only one. Oh, wow. That is crazy when you say that. I'm on social media, so I always put out a positive message. What I got from that is telling people that, listen, it doesn't matter if you think what you're going through is truly unique. It's not. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have been traversing the same path, and they have gone through the similar challenges. That's right. So just make sure that you choose people that could help you in a circle of friends and supporters and mentors that could assist you when you're going through that circumstances. And be positive about it as well, because that will help. But knowing that you're not the only one is something that could actually drive a positive mindset. Yes. That's exactly how I see things. And I always say this truly the light of the end of the tunnel, even when it seems your darkest hour. That's my mindset towards life. That's my mindset towards any circumstances. It doesn't matter how tough it might seem. That's right. So I feel like this is now just peanuts, but the personal challenges that you've been through and really the career challenges that you've been through as a person, tell me a little bit about how overcoming those challenges maybe helped you overcome more specifically leadership challenges. Do you have some stories where those intersected your challenges and what you did personally and in your career and where that overlapped in terms of handling a specific leadership challenge? To be honest, there are several leadership challenges that I went through. And one was when I was at Smith Group, maybe about seven, eight years ago, there was a client that I wanted to chase and a Carillion Clinic, that client became a great client of mine. The former director of healthcare said to me, um, hey, that client is not spending any money. You're wasting your time. I'm like, wow, the confidence that he had in me, big A, small E, that's what they call it. So it's mostly architects, less engineers in the organization at the time. So me trying to push through and him really basically flexing his muscle as an architect is just basically saying, you know what, just stay in your lane. <laughs> that's Okay, got it, got it. That's really not you. But that's at the time I was trying to push through business development and build engineering team. At the time, I was leading the studio in terms of engineering. And my task was to build a team, but also to win work, win more work. And at the time, there was nobody in a cement group in all the offices that they have that was leading engineering only project. It was a situation in which the architects will go out and win the projects. And if they want to use the engineer, they would. So it's a situation is that we will have to wait on the architects to win it in order for us to understand the type of project that we're going to work on. So we were always in the background. 
So I know that this is the status quo. This is what you do and you've been doing this for a number of years and stuff and everything. But I am going to go out and win engineering. And I'm going to market engineering. I'm going to set my own engineering qualification. I'm going to build engineering and I'm going to sell engineering. It's being that bold and making that tough decision that I'm going to go against the grain and I'm going to challenge the status quo. And I remember I went on the first project, the same Carillion Clinic. I won an operating room renovation project for them at the time. We were actually built a project that we call Or of the Future because it was so technologically advanced. And the project got like five awards. Wow. And this is something that I would never win a project with Carillion Clinic. Six million in fees later with that same client doing all sort of work and really building engineering until the CEOs and the larger organization asked me if I could actually teach the other offices how to do that. That's how I realized that, you know what? It's not what you see and not what the status quo is. In leadership, it's actually building something that's truly unique. It's really your vision and how you want to write your story and how you do it. And as long as you're committed to your goals and vision, it truly will put you in the position that you can win. And that's what I've been doing in the industry in terms of leadership. I've been doing stuff that's not non-traditional. I've been winning projects that people would write me off and say, there's no way it can happen. <laughs> I've been creating my own ways and to navigate this career and this leadership. I remember getting a call from Romy and he said to me, hey, Gary, you're truly one of my favorite person. And I tell you what, <laughs> you have taught us a whole lot of stuff that we weren't doing and stuff that we thought about a whole lot. But you just do it with so much passion and flair and compassion and how you treat people. Your clients truly want to work with you. That's my leadership. It's people seeing through me and seeing actually what I'm about. Also, I remember something happened in a project in which we faltered. The initial stage of a project, we faltered and we didn't do justice and do a good package. And the client called me and said to me, um, I have to talk to your team. And he talked to a few of us and he went on and said, you did this wrong, did that wrong. And I remember one of the team members was being defensive. And I said, hey, put my hands up. My team didn't do us justice. I think we were better than what you saw. Yeah. What I can promise you that we will do better and it will not happen again. Yeah. I remember I sent the client a message and said, hey, I'm a man of my words. And that's what I've been doing, always doing in the industry. And he sent a message back to me and said, because this is a brand new client. He said to me, Gary, your reputation is out there. You're known as a human being and you're known as somebody who client trusts and see as a trusted partner. Wow. I have zero relationship. I've spoken to this guy two or three times. Wow. But that's what's out there. And that's what other clients are saying about me. And that's something that I truly adore about doing what I do is that people appreciate it and see my heart and see my passion and see that I'm driven to do the best and really try to be the best I can in everything. And I think that's what shines to me and just shines to my job, shines to how I manage, how I lead. I have a team that I have a tremendous relationship with. It's not only during work. I will call and we'll talk <laughs> for hours about absolutely anything. Right. And that's the open door. We started with networking and in some ways, networking is really about people say building your brand, but building your reputation, building who it is that you want to be. And the story that you were telling, it's like, 
you built that and now you have to continue to live it, <laughs> which <Yes. laughs> you want to do, right? It's not like something that you're shying away from, but that is an interesting aspect. Like you did build this reputation and built this brand of who Gary Hamilton is and who he represents and how he treats people and his clients. And that client was already tuned into that. And I'm sure he was probably giving you a chance or worst case scenario, but really just knowing that you were going to hold to your word, right? But the other thing that I thought was interesting too is that there's this theme with you where it's like, people are telling me I can't do this, but it's not like you're going to be defiant. You're going to be really nice about it, <laughs> but you're going to be like, well, thanks for letting me know, but I'm going to actually try anyway <laughs> with the knee, with the schooling, with the, you know, 98 rejections, you know, and two responses. One of them, can you work for free to this, which is we have to lead with big A architecture, little E engineering. And it's like, you know what, I would rather try it a different way. I'd rather go this other route. And you did and you were successful. So I think that's what's interesting because nowadays we hear a lot about people like going out on their own and doing their own thing. What's important about, I think the story, this last one about leadership and what you were trying to do differently within the context of the organization you were working in is that that's not always easy to do. It's easy to just go out on your own. I'm going to do my own thing, but you didn't do that. You stayed within the context of this organization and this corporate structure, but yet you still were able to forge your own path. Did I get that right? <laughs> it's so true. That's exactly what it is. Even moving to WSP, that was a decision. I was a partner. I was extremely happy paid well. But my same Amit Curtin, my same headhunter that got me the job at Smith Group, uh -huh. actually told me about this opportunity in which there is a office in Arlington that we have this massive company, but they didn't have a great healthcare stance in the mid-Atlantic. When I looked at it at the time, they were doing like $800,000 in terms of uh, projects. And I'm like, wow. So I'm leaving uh, the engineering team that I built, the successful team that I built, and the national engineering healthcare leader for the company, I'm going to try to build something <laughs> from scratch. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, wow. But something like that energizes me. And I said to myself, you know what? I think I could do this. And the reason why I did it as well is that I'm truly moving from under the architect's realm now. I'm going to be working for an engineering company where at this point, I could elevate engineering to the highest and really elevate my career to, I call it the stratosphere, where <laughs> it's to push it to the highest point. And really without no impediments and just without nothing to pull me back or nothing to really cause any challenges. So joining the organization, I said, you know, this is what I'm going to do. It's truly uncomfortable to grow from ground zero because that's how I felt I was doing. But when I moved, I became so comforted because immediately all my clients, I was trying to market before who are architects. Some of the clients that I worked with who left some group and are working with other companies, they all came to me and they're like, oh, you're at WSP now. I want to work with you. Wow. I'm like, wow, this is just so wild. Literally in about two, three years, I was doing maybe $4 million in terms of revenues. Wow. That's amazing. And it's just like, wow. Like I even surprised myself. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> It just shows you that relationships trump a lot of things. Yes. People want to work with you and you prove yourself as not just hardworking and really good at what you do, but like someone who cares about people and cares about service and cares about results. It just goes so far. That's what exactly how I came and that's how I grew and how I continue to lead and continue to really challenge the status quo and really not in a way that I'm trying to go against the grain, but in a way that just to 
prove to myself as well as to prove to people that, you know what, it's possible. If you just look at it and approach it from a different direction, you know, maybe we can do something. Maybe we can do it different and achieve even better results. I feel like you've already said so much, but is there anything else that you might say to someone who is that up and coming leader? I went through all the challenges and that shaped me in terms of where I am. So my past truly dictates my future and and what I'm doing now. What I would say to people like myself, I'm going to put it in the context of younger African-American who choose to do engineering and choose to go into leadership and choose to push their career to the highest level. Don't be daunted by the fact that you might be a minority in uh, in leadership and and minority in, in traversing your path. You have to stick to the fact that if you push hard and if you work hard and if you're truly committed to your craft and committed to your trade, and if you put everything into it, there is a route to being successful. And I don't use my start or the midpoint where I'm from, my color, as an impediment. I think you can use it as something to drive you and something to push you to the highest point of anything that you do and your career. And that's truly my story keep pushing. And that's what I do. Whatever you want and whatever you want to achieve, you truly could achieve it when you push and try hard. Thank you. That's awesome. I knew you were going to be someone who had some great stories. (laughs) I just knew it. (laughs) No, thank you so much for sharing this. I'm wondering, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners about leadership that you think would be valuable for them to know or anything else that we didn't cover that we should? (laughs) Just my closing. In terms of people would ask, what's your leadership style? I leave with a smile. That's the first thing. I leave with compassion and empathy. And the reason why I choose compassion over empathy when I'm leading is that I want my staff, people who work for me, to know that I'm going to stand side by side. I'm going to play in the same sandbox with them. I'm going to be in the drain, try to figure stuff out with you rather than telling you I understand how you feel. I want you to know that I'm going to be holding your hands and helping you through whatever it is, whatever challenge, whatever design challenge, whatever decisions, knowing that I'm going to be there making that. And if you make the decision on your own, I'm going to be supporting you because I know that you made the right decision. That's something that I truly think that my employee, they like that because I I empower them to make decisions, I empower them to be great. And it's something that I think that that's truly a part of me. Compassion is everything. Yeah, no, that's great. What's next for you? (laughs) Maybe you can't talk about it. What are your aspirations? (laughs) (laughs) Where I am now, I call it the midpoint of my career, but to push harder and go higher executive level, CEOs. Good. That's what I'm looking for. That's something that I truly believe that's achievable. So watch the space. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Watch the space. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that because I think that you should be reaching there. (laughs) Not that I have any doubt that you would be, but it's good to hear. Well, Gary, thank you so much. Really appreciated our time together. And I look forward to further conversations with you in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Juanita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much.